Well, most of you guys know that I uh, coach cross country at Central High School, and um, every once in a while, um, you know, heading into a new season, you kind of have this sense that this could be something special. You know, you've got the the right mix of, of talent and, and hard work and character kids on your team. And so, and so you start thinking about kind of big things. And um, I, I've had a few of those teams over the years. And, and usually what I like to do with those teams is that kind of early in the summer training, um, when the season is a long way off, I like to kind of get them together and, and have them as a group kind of picture, um, you know, what is the climactic scene that you have in mind, like the last memory that you want to have of how this season is going to end. And I want you to picture what that's going to look like. And, and I had a really good boys team in 2012. And, and to a man, when that group would get together early on, we would talk about what that season was going to look like. Every one of them was like, you know, the picture that they had in mind was that we want to be on that podium at the end with one of the top four teams in the state that gets a trophy. And we got fifth. But that's beside the point. Um, but what I would do is I would, I would come back to that, you know, because we were talking about something that was going to happen in November. But this was like June. <laughs> and it was a long way off. But periodically, kind of throughout the summer, I would say to them, you know, hey, what do we need to do today? Who do we need to be today? The kind of character that we need to have so that we can end up in that place that you want to be further down the road and try to focus on just the here and now. Because if you don't have kind of that big picture line item way out there in the end, you kind of lose focus a little bit. You know, you lose sight of, you know, when it's June 21st and July 10th and like, why am I getting up again in the morning when all my friends are sleeping in? Why am I putting my body through this pain? What's it all for? And it's also so helpful when it's a group of you kind of looking at each other saying, we're doing this so that we can have that, right? And Jesus had a similar experience with his team of 12 disciples, these guys he kind of gathered up, except in the beginning, he was the only one that really knew how the story was going to turn out. It was a mystery to everybody else. But when you examine the way in which he went about developing this team, we know that he did it with the end in mind. So what was that end? Let's go ahead and open our Bibles up to Matthew um, chapter 28, and we'll take a look at where he was pointing them to. It's page 698 in your pew Bibles, Matthew chapter 28. So this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he appears to um, his disciples, and it says over 500 people in his resurrected body over a period of about 40 days. And, and then he's got some of these last words that he wants to share with his followers um, before he ascends into heaven. And it's called the Great Commission. We'll start in verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the end in mind is to be disciples who make disciples. Okay? 
And this text would have been written in Greek, and the Greek word there that uh, was used for disciples uh, would be translated learners. Okay? So be learners who make other learners. Okay? That's the end in mind for all of us. And the true test for Jesus' kind of effectiveness was, could those 12 guys that he spent three years with, in the end, were they going to be able to replicate themselves? Were they going to be able to multiply into the lives of others what they knew, and what they had been taught and they had experienced, so that then the multiple groups of people could take this message out to the rest of the world? Okay? So... With that kind of end in mind, let's take a look at what Jesus did in the beginning. So I want you to just turn over. The next book right there is Mark. So Mark chapter 3, just a couple of pages over. So in the very beginning, Jesus kind of really amassed uh, a fairly, you know, a couple hundred people who were kind of following him around. Okay? And so at this point, he's going to kind of pare it down a little bit. And, and he's going to choose some folks who are going to have a little bit more special access to him. Uh, kind of like backstage passes to Jesus, right? VIP status, all right? You think they wore little lanyards with badges on, right? I don't think so, but um, let's look at verse 13 of chapter 3. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So he called them first to do what? What? To be with him. Right? He says he called 12 to be with him. So first and foremost, before you go out and teach anybody anything, before you go out and heal the sick and cast out demons or whatever else I'll have you to do, I want you to be in deep relationship with me. He invited these 12 guys, as the scripture says again and again, to come and see. To come and see. Right? Not just what he did or the miracles he performed or the teaching, but just to be with him. And so for three years, this, this 12 group of guys had this, this intimate access to Jesus. They ate hundreds of meals with him. At, at night, they would gather around a campfire, you know, and I'm sure tell each other's jokes and laugh until they fell asleep, right? For years, they probably peed in the woods together hundreds of times. All the things you do when you're camping, right? Jesus did those things too, and they shared almost every moment of their lives with Jesus. And this gave, us, that this gave them intimate access to him. He was available to them. This wasn't some program or some little class that they went to for a couple hours a day and then they would just go home back to their normal lives. No, this was life. Their life was being with him all the time in a very intimate and time-consuming way. And I think Jesus did it this way because it was the only way that he could figure out how he could transfer himself into someone else. You can't do that on a limited basis if you want to make a disciple. So they watched him work, and they listened, and they asked questions, and eventually he sent them out to do the things that he was doing. 
And in the church, we sometimes talk about making disciples or about making other followers of Christ. And with very good intentions, we tell our new Christian friends, hey, now that you're a Christian, you're going to have to read the Bible and you're going to need to pray and you're going to need to serve and you're going to need to start um, sharing your faith with other people and you're going to need to start living out uh, the ways of Jesus. And as we've discovered this year, um, the ways of Jesus are very difficult. And so you're saying, you know, now you need to really love your enemies and you need to forgive people 70 times, seven times. And you need to be concerned about the least of these in this world. You need to be generous with your time and your money. And most people who haven't grown up going to church don't know how to do that. I didn't know how to do that. And so when, when I came along and I became a Christian, I'm like, well, now that you're a Christian, you've got to do this, 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 this. I, I don't know how to do that. Help me, you know? It's a foreign concept, and it's a totally new way of operating. If your whole life has been the way of the world and its way of thinking and operating and, you know, me first and get what you can and all those things, be comfortable, retire and, you know, play golf or whatever it is, and then you reorient yourself to the Jesus way, it's like, whoa, man, it's the opposite, <laughs> A lot of the time. It would be like saying to someone, uh, an English-speaking person, well, now that you're a Christian, um, you're going to need to speak Russian. And so here's a book on Russian, and you probably should pray to God to help you learn how to speak Russian, and you probably just need to hang out with a lot of Russians, right? And so, like, you know, the dutiful person that you are, like, I really want to be a good Russian, so I'm going to go to a Russian-speaking church, right? Who doesn't want to be a good Russian, right? Um, You know, so you go to your Russian-speaking church, and you're totally lost. I mean, you can't understand anything they're doing. They're telling you to do this stuff at church, and you don't know when to stand up and sit down and what page to turn to and what they're saying all the time. And it's extremely frustrating. And what you're really hoping is that someone in that church that that speaks both languages, English and Russian, would just invite you over for lunch and sit you down week after week and just very patiently and slowly and mercifully teach you Russian, right? Somebody who knows I'm going to make a lot of mistakes in this process, so you're going to have to be really patient and slow with me because I'm going to mess it up a lot. And that's what we would hope would be our experience in, in Christianity as well. Remember, the Greek word for disciple is directly translated as learner. So in this book that I've read um, called Building a Discipling Culture, um, the author Mike Breen talks about um, kind of the three levels or the, the three steps in learning, okay? And all of these are pretty familiar with us. It's made up of three components. There's lecture and apprenticeship and immersion, okay? And lecture is just what you think it is. It's where somebody stands up and passes on a lot of information to you. Apprenticeship is where you watch somebody who's skilled. You watch them do the job and then they watch you do it and kind of coach you along until you perfect it. And then immersion is where they kind of kick you out and you got to go do it on your own, right? Okay? And uh, the immersion process, this whole process, kind of depending on the skill that you're trying to acquire, I mean, that, it could take several years, this process, to happen. So a, a nurse, for instance, I've never been to, to nursing school, but I'll just tell you what I think it's like. I would imagine from talking to some of the nurses that I've talked to, right, that in the beginning of your nursing program, it's a lot of lecture. It's a lot of reading, a lot of note-taking, a lot of going to class and just absorbing and trying to memorize material, material, material. 
And then at some point, there's this transition where you start going to the hospital and making rounds with like experienced nurses and you're watching what they do. And maybe they let you do something simple, you know, that doesn't, you know, might not cost anybody their life, like listen to their heartbeat or do some different things like that. But then even once you get a job as a nurse, you still have kind of like this probationary period in the beginning where you're under the supervision of an experienced nurse and they're pretty much watching the things that you do. Until at some level you show enough proficiency or they're understaffed enough to say, hey, you go and do it now, right? And you just hope you don't kill anybody. Is that fairly how it goes, nurses out there? Is something like that? Yeah. Okay. And this process of apprenticeship is, is really deeply ingrained in our culture, the history of our culture. If you go back to colonial times... Families would have a a 13 or 14-year-old kid, and we'll just use a boy in this illustration, and they would go and find him um, a master craftsman to be an apprentice to. So let's just say that he was going to go and learn how to be a blacksmith. And so in colonial times, they would take their 13 or 14-year-old son, they would find uh, a craftsman, a blacksmith that would be willing to take him in, and they would enter into this contract um, that they would both have agreed to certain things. But this, this relationship then would look like this. This boy would leave his family, and he would move in with the blacksmith's family, and he would eat at their table, and he would sleep under their roof, and he would be with them all the time. And in the beginning, that relationship would be the blacksmith kind of explaining to him the ins and outs of you know, the heating process and the banging metal process, right? There's probably a practical term for that that's much more expertise than that. But, right? And so he would just kind of teach him about being a blacksmith. And then slowly he would begin letting him do some things, probably some you know, smaller projects that wouldn't waste too much material if he messed it up. And then he would continue to do this. And they would enter into this relationship a lot of times for about five to seven years. And then eventually you would become proficient enough to where they would kick you out and say, hey, you're on your own. Or, or they would say, hey, you're going to work for me now and you're going to start you know, filling orders as they come in. But eventually the hope was that one day that apprentice would become a master craftsman and then he would take on an apprentice and that process would repeat itself over time nowadays we call those internships and they're much shorter and you don't live with your boss all right hopefully (laughs) all right but it's the same kind of idea but it was a very time-consuming an intimate process, which is maybe why we don't learn things as well as we used to, because we don't allow for that time and that immersion like we used to to develop those skills. So how did Jesus do it? With the end in mind, okay, he was thinking, I want you to be disciples who make disciples. What was the process that he went about so that his way could be passed on to the world? Well, first of all, as we see back in Mark 3, it says that he gave them very intimate access to his life. He invited him in and said, I want you to to just do life with me. You're going to move in with me. We're going to go on the road together, right? And he was always teaching them. One of the first uh, passages that we see in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's like Matthew chapters 5 through 9, and it's just Jesus like pouring out to them. This is how the kingdom of God looks. This is the way in which we're going to operate as followers of Christ here in this world, which was a very different way than they had been living. But Jesus is passing on this information, and he's saying things like, love your enemy and bless those who curse you. But when you're sitting in the lecture and you're just hearing information and without the context of seeing it really lived out, it's just kind of like, okay, yeah, I guess that sounds all right. 
But it takes on a very different thing when all of a sudden Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's looking down at the Roman soldiers that beat him and mocked him and nailed him there and he's saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And all of a sudden, all those things that Jesus had said about loving your enemy and blessing those who curse you take on a whole different meaning. And it took on a whole different meaning when Peter, who was the guy that kind of disowned Jesus uh, right before he was crucified, when Jesus comes back in his resurrected body and he has this interaction with Peter where he basically kind of forgives him and brings him back into the family. It's like, oh, that's what it looks like to forgive. And so he shows that and demonstrates it. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus gives this amazing word picture. I'm going to show the scripture here. Chapter 11, verses 28 through 30 says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Jesus gives this illustration of, of this yoke, okay? That's probably how most of you got to church this morning, right? Um, and so what the farmer would do is he would take a young ox and an older ox and he would yoke them in together because when you're, got, when you're yoked together, you got to go the same speed, right? And what tended to happen was that the younger ox was all excited and so he would work really hard for a few hours and then in the heat of the afternoon, he'd be like, oh, I'm so tired, I'm exhausted, you know? And the older ox is like, you got to pace yourself, buddy, Right? <laughs> And it's like, we got to do this for 10 or 12 hours, so just go the pace that I'm going. And so he would teach him this rhythm of how to work and how to go about it in a manageable way over the course of time. And so the younger ox would learn this rhythm or pace from the grizzled veteran, right? And so Jesus is saying to us in this, he's saying, hey, I want you to get in my yoke, and I want you to learn from me, and I want you to move along at the pace that I'm going to move your life along at, and we're going to learn some things together. And a lot of you guys have, have, are connected with Young Life or have been through Young Life as kids, and you kind of understand some of the, the methods at which they go about reaching unchurched teenagers. And when I was uh, on staff with Young Life for about six years, um, I was always kind of looking around for or who are the leaders that are out there and you know who are the leaders that are still in high school so maybe some seniors and then who are the kids that have graduated that I might be able to recruit to come back and be leaders right but I was kind of looking as as Justin talked about well like who are the persons of peace you know who are those kids that are open to my influence and that I can kind of bring under my wing and so um, I would get together with those folks and I would say okay you know I'm going to teach you how to do young life and and really it's just teaching you how to be like Jesus but um I would say, hey, you know, first we're going to, I want you to read these couple of books and that are going to talk about kind of the history of young life and how it got started. And it's going to teach you some of the ins and outs of some of the catchphrases and ways of operating that we use, right? Like meet kids on their turf, you know, or um, it's a sin uh, to bore the kid uh, with the gospel, okay? And, and, and some, some earning the right to be heard, all these little catchphrases that young life has. And so we would go through some of that material And then I would take them out with me, and I would show them how I developed relationships with kids. 
And there were things that I did in that. And most of it uh, meant just being a fool and sticking your neck out there and being embarrassed most of the time. But there were little tricks of the trade that I did in trying to remember kids' names. And I would, I would maybe take these people and say, hey, here's how I prepare for a Young Life Club. Here's how I write a talk. Here's how I write, try to recruit kids to camp. And one of those young leaders that I had uh, was a senior at Central named Sean Lesney. A lot of you guys know Sean. He came to church here for a lot of years, and um, he was just a great guy, and um, he was a natural leader. And so once he kind of came to Christ and really, um, you know, committed to that way of life the summer before his senior year, I was like, all right, man, Sean, you're going to be my buddy here this last year, and we're going to go get kids together, okay? So I I kind of uh, yoked myself to Sean, okay, and... uh, And I said, all right, let's do this. And so Sean played football. And so I was like, well, just pray and ask God. Okay, you can take that down now. There you go. Thank you. We get the point. I said, pray and ask God, you know, what kids on the team, like that are, you're kind of drawn to and maybe connect with you and, and kind of like a, what, are, what kids are persons of peace for you? And just begin spending some time with those kids and go to their freshman games and like notice how they do and encourage them. And then at some point, as he got to know a couple kids, he's like, hey, here's a couple kids that are kind of on my heart. And I said, oh, great. Now invite him to club and, and say, hey, I'll come and pick you up if you need a ride. And then as, as the year went on and they began to come into club, I'm like, hey, you know, tell them you're going to go to camp with them this summer and that you're going to help raise money to get them there. All right. And so we kind of went through this, this year together with, with him and I working together. And I was downloading what others had taught me. And I was modeling that behavior to Sean. And then at one point as he was picking it up, I was kind of kicking him out of the nest and being like, man, go and do it. And he was getting to experience, you know, God using him for the first time to, to impact other people. And I was kind of replicating myself. And to be honest, those of you that know Sean, he probably could have done it without any guidance from me. <laughs> he probably would have just figured it out because he was such a great leader anyways. So this past week, um, my small group w- gathered up, and we were talking about Justin's sermon from last Sunday, okay? And this whole idea of, of persons of peace, and we were talking about um, the process in which kind of we came to Christ and really began living it out, and what were the things that kind of happened in our life. Uh, and most of the folks in my group, and my circle, had grown up going to church, and, and all of them had, had heard the information, they'd heard the lectures, but they said, you know, it didn't really take off in their life until somebody kind of, you know, hooked them up in the yoke, you know, whether it was their youth pastor or an assistant pastor of their church or just an older friend and said, hey, come with me, you know, come and do life with me. And, and one person in particular in our group, I thought this was pretty cool, man. He was a senior in high school and his, his leader was like, hey, you know, go to Missouri Western next year and help me reach some kids on campus and, and you can also move in with me. And I knew this guy, his name was Jeremy, and uh, I knew he had a wife and kids, so I'm like, dang, all right. You know, so he, so he moves in with Jeremy, and so it's, it's not just him learning, you know, some, a few things. He's watching Jeremy operate as a husband and a father and, and just a leader in Christ. And that learning process for him was expedited by the access that Jeremy gave to his life, and I'm sure that that was costly for him and his wife at times. Maybe there's a food bill or what. Maybe they had built-in free babysitting. Maybe that was a benefit, but but it's costly to have somebody else live in your home. 
It's, it's an invasion of your privacy at times, right? And as followers of Christ, we are all called to be disciples or learners who make others, other disciples or learners spreading everywhere this life-giving message of the kingdom of God. And we're called first to step inside that yoke with Jesus and, and to just to be with him before we're really concerned about doing anything and that's a daily thing. I've been following Christ for 30 years now, and I'm still, like, yoking myself up with Jesus, man. Teach me the pace, the rhythm. You know, I want to stay in ministry for a long time. How do I do that without getting tired and burned out? You know, and eventually, just like Jesus does with those other disciples, he's like, hey, I need to kick you out of there. It's time for you to go do it. You know, if we could just go back to that nursing analogy, it's like it's, at some point you've got to go out and you've got to draw blood for the first time from a patient, you know, and you've got to dress that wound, that nasty, smelly wound. <laughs> or if you're a surgeon, like at some point, you've got to do surgery by yourself. You've got to do that first one, and it's scary and it's risky, but it has to happen, right? And then along the way, we have a responsibility and really an opportunity to take other people under our wings, to hook them into the yoke with us and say, hey, you know, let's go. We're going to learn some stuff together about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so in that yoking together, instead of just telling people, well, now that you're a Christian, you need to read the Bible and you need to pray. When you're yoked in with somebody, you say, hey, you know what? Come with me while I do that, and I'll show you how I do it. This is how I read the Bible. This is how I pray. You take them with you when you go and serve, and, and you say, hey, this is, this is how you do this. When you write down, when you write your check, you know, those of you that still use checks, when you write your check to church, you know, you get that younger kid that you're discipling and you say, hey, come over here. Hey, look at our budget. Here are the choices that we have to make as a family in order to be able to be generous to the church like God asks us to. And we teach them the importance of that so that when they go and have their own family, they understand what they have to do in order to, to be faithful to the God with things God calls them to. And we gather them up and we share our failures with them. And we say, hey man, this is how I blew it. And this is what I learned from that. And I want you to not have to make some of the same mistakes that I have. And it takes time and we have to be intentional and it's costly sometimes. But there's no other way to really create faithful followers of Christ than to give them access to your life in a way that's going to demand more of you than you want it to demand most of the time. And so today as we close, kind of the two questions that I want to ask you is one, who are you yoking yourself up to? You know, Jesus was physically present with his disciples. He's not physically present on this earth any longer. But his ambassadors... His followers are all around us. And so we have opportunity when we see somebody who's a little farther down the road. It doesn't have to do with age. It has to do with maturity in the faith. To where you go to somebody that you can see you've got some things to learn from them. And in a very intentional way, this just doesn't happen by accident. You go to them and you say, can you give me access to your life? Can I hang out with you? I want to learn from you. I want to yoke myself up to you. And in the same way, and I still do that, guys. 
just, just about two months ago, I went to some guys in Kansas City who, whenever I'm around them, they inspire me and they challenge me. And I said, guys, I've got things to learn from you. And they're, one of them's older than me, one of them's younger than me. It's like, I want to hang out with you. I'm going to make time in my schedule to be with you. Give me access to your life. And then we also have to ask the question on the other end, who are we yoking ourselves up to and inviting in and giving access to our lives and saying, hey, come, be a part of my life with me. I'm inviting you into that process. I got a Facebook message the other day. Um, It's kind of one of those just out of the blue messages. You know, I'm just like, what in the world? (laughs) It took me a while to remember um, who it was and (laughs) what I had done with them. So this guy named Josh Morgan um, he went to Missouri Western. Some of you that went there might remember him. He came to Wellspring for several years, but he's been gone for probably five at least. And he sent me this Facebook message on, on Friday that said this, Hey, Bob, I simply want to say thank you for being present, available, and for me during my time in St. Joe. You were the person God used in such chaotic, in such a chaotic and dark time of my life to bring love, peace, and a hope that I would make it. I wish I could write a novel to articulate it all, but know you made a difference in my life and showed me love and acceptance like no one had in my life. Be encouraged today. You are seen by God, and he is so proud of you. Much love, Josh Morgan. And and honestly, I had to, like, think really hard. What did I do? (laughs) Like, I don't remember what he was going through. I remember having a couple lunches with him, like at Chipotle, and talking about life, and I knew... I vaguely remember, yeah, there was some rough stuff he was going through, but he moved away pretty quickly after that, and I haven't heard from him since until I got that. You know, and when life's all said and done, folks, my hope for you, my prayer for you is that you would have like a a little folder in your desk where you would print off notes like that, emails, texts, Facebook messages from people who would say, man, thank you for giving me access to your life. Thank you for inviting me in and just being with me through whatever I was going through and teaching me the ways of Jesus. Because that's, that's what life's all about, folks. It's about yoking ourselves to Jesus and yoking ourselves to a younger person and showing them the way by giving them access to us, the good and the bad, and then showing them how to be followers of Christ in a way they can understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much as we enter into this time of communion this morning. God, we're just grateful that you, um, you just give us that invitation, you know, to yoke ourselves to you and so we can learn from you. And you say that, that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that you don't weigh us down with all of these rules and laws and things that feel heavy. The reason why it doesn't feel heavy is because you're taking the brunt of the load. You're that that older ox in that analogy that's saying, hey, just follow me. You know, and sometimes when we're tired, you're kind of just dragging us along. And we're just picking up one foot barely after the other to kind of keep pace with you. And you're you're just so gentle and, and just caring towards us in that process. So Lord, I pray that as followers of you, that we would look around and and find those people whose pace and rhythm and and whose passion and love for you that we admire and say, 
Oh, man, would you give me access to your life? Would you let me hang around you and just learn from you? And I pray as, as leaders in here that we would, we would make space for people, make room for them. And that we would look around to those younger folks and say, man, who's got some potential? Who's, who's a person of peace? Who's open to my influence? And we would offer access to them so they don't have to ask. That we would have those ongoing relationships where we are, we're modeled Christ by others and then we're modeling it to those younger than us. Because that's the only way that this, this gospel is going to be replicated and duplicated and increases our influence in this world so that everyone would know the hope, the joy, the, the promise of, of love and eternal life with you. So Lord, as we enter into this time of silence, God, I pray that you would just speak to us. Maybe put on our heart um, some folks that we need to approach that would mentor us or put on our hearts some, some younger folks that we can offer our life to.